Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Secret Library Podcast. Welcome to Season 6. As we celebrate six years of the show, we are exploring a very important theme, publication. What does publication mean for you as a writer? What are the choices available? And how does that impact both you and your book? We'll be talking with multiple writers on their publication experience this season, helping you get closer to publication as well. My guest this week is New York Times bestselling and award-winning author Jacqueline Wittenspear. A listener favorite, many of you know Jacqueline from her previous appearances on The Secret Library. For those of you who are new, you're in for a treat. She is the author of 17 books in the Maisie Dobbs series, as well as the memoir This Time Next Year Will Be Laughing, What Would Maisie Do?, and a standalone novel The Care and Management of Lies. The latest installment in the Maisie Dobbs series, A Sunlit Weapon, is out March 22nd. It was so important to me to snatch the opportunity to speak to Jacqueline, given that there was another book coming out, because publication, for many of us, is the end of a series of working on one book and trying to find a home for it. But I wanted us to see the experience of someone who has, over the past 20 years, regularly put out about a book a year. And what does that process look like? What does it look like when you have a pub date from the moment you start conceiving of a book? And how does that change the writing process? How does that inform your choices and affect your routine? Given that Jacqueline is such a pro and so generous with her insight, she gives great advice as well as much behind the scenes information about how she constructs these books from the beginning all the way to the point that they hit shelves. I'm very, very happy to have Jacqueline with us and I know you'll enjoy this episode too. Here we go with Jacqueline Winspear. Jacqueline, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Well, it's always a pleasure. I'm I'm thrilled to be here and just to see see you again and have a chat. It's great. Oh, no, I've been really looking forward to it. And so this season, we're talking about publication. And I thought, my goodness, with A Sunlit Weapon, you've written 17 volumes of Maisie Dobbs since 2003. And... 
I guess the first thing I wanted to ask you is how does it feel to be on number 17 with this character? Um, how does it feel? Uh, I'm a little bit tired, actually. <laughs> I wondered. But not tired of the character because that's, that's the worst thing that can happen as a writer if, if you sort of get, get fed up with your characters and fed up with the story. Um, I, I, I feel as though I'm, I'm, I'm accomplishing what I set out to do. And when I, I first, when I wrote Maisie Dobbs, um, I, I thought, this is it, this is, my novel. this is my novel, the only novel I'm ever going to write in my life. And I had this story in my head. I think I might have told you this story before, but um, the, 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 uh, I was very fortunate. You know, I, I found an agent and then the agent found a publisher and the publisher found a publication date and I had a novel in my hands and so on. And, uh, and it was just after Macy Dobbs went into production my they, then editor, the late Laura Hushka of Soho Press, called me and said, right, uh, now let's talk about the next one in the series. <laughs> I remember thinking, the next one in the series. And, it was, <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to have to tap dance here. So I, I, and I, I just said, you know, uh, there's uh, my phone's ringing. Can I call you back on that? I said, because I've, I've got some ideas. And came off the phone and thought, I don't have any ideas what <laughs> It was it was really funny because, uh, and I advise anyone to do this. But as I was writing Maisie Dobbs, there were ideas, scenes, scraps of dialogue that were coming to me that I was writing that I eventually took out, or something I thought about that I didn't use. But I kept it. I kept the ideas, and I put them in a file on my desktop, on my computer desktop, marked fragments. I have done that to this day. Fragments. I thought, okay, I'm going to pull out the fragments. And I pulled out my fragments. And sometimes it was just a sentence, sometimes a paragraph. And I printed it, each one on a page, and put them around the, on the floor. And I started moving them around. And I know this is going to sound like a great leap here in the story, but I realized I had the seeds, just the seeds, for six more books. Wow. And it was just a character here that I hadn't included, an idea there that I hadn't included. and. And then, you know, obviously, I mean, we've talked about my, we talked about my memoir a couple of years ago, but, and there were elements of my own, uh, my own history, um, and really not so much my story, but the stories I'd heard from people growing up that I thought I can weave these in. And then I thought, what do I want to create? And it gave me the chance to think about that in a way that I might not have thought about it if I'd have dived in and said, okay, I've got a series and this is a, um, my protagonist and, and, you know, and every, every story could have taken place on the same day, if you will. But instead I realized I wanted not only an arc to that story, I wanted an arc to this journey, this woman's journey through one of the most tumultuous times in, in 20th century history, the time from just before the first world war to just after the second world war. And I thought, how, what? And it's not only just one character, but I have a cast of characters, as often authors do. And how is this going to look and feel as they go through time? And how can I weave in the events of the time and how they impacted ordinary people? So, so that was my quest, if you will. And uh, um, and I actually, I also, I, I must admit, I, I like having an ensemble cast. You know, I'm one of these people. I like these movies where. The gang comes together, you know, Ocean's yeah. Eleven, right. Ocean's Eight, 
the Magnificent Seven, you know, something like that. Um, I like I like seeing these these people interact with each other and grow together and, and know each other's histories. And that's how it is with people that work together and are friends and family. We know each other's histories. We know what has gone before. So how does it feel to get to number 17? I feel, wow, I didn't think I'd get here. I really didn't know whether I'd be able to do what I set out to do. You know, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a journey. Absolutely. I mean, I think because there is the side, you know, of the reader where getting the book and getting to read the book, which I so enjoyed, it does feel very much like a little reunion. You know, you have Mm -hmm. this reunion with the characters and the experience. And as a writer, I'm just thinking, hmm, 2003 to 2022 and 17 books plus the two others you've written. I'm like, that's a book a year. So I'm very Mm. interested in how do you manage to stay in relationship with the characters and enjoy the process when, you know, how much time do you get to write them and and how do you manage that process? Um, Well, as I I mentioned to you earlier, sometimes I have to look at the books and remind myself, you did that before, you can do it again. Because just because you've written more than one book doesn't mean to say you don't get scared when you see the blank page in front of you and you are just starting. Um, So I I think there are several things at play. Number one, um, uh, discipline. Discipline, because some of those books I wrote during very difficult times when I I was back and forth to England several times a year because, um, you know, my parents, my late parents were, um, you know, getting older and then my my dad became ill and passed away and, and then a few years later so did my mother. And I had to keep going through that because I had deadlines and it wasn't a case of being able to say to someone, well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to miss the deadline this year because um, I think one of the things to appreciate as an author is that that, that that your publishing is a business. It's a business that employs a lot of people and every one of those people has a job. And so once your book is on target to be published, things are supposed to happen at a certain time, including booking printers and what have you. You have to respect that. Um, But how do I do that? And I think it is discipline. I think it's knowing, for me, it's knowing what I can achieve in a given number of months. Years ago, and it was after I published about three three or four novels, I read Stephen King's book on writing, Mm, which I think is one of the best. But if if people read no other book on writing, that's the book to read, as well as Betsy Lerner's The Forest for the Trees. And that's written from the perspective of a literary agent and editor. Um, So you get a different perspective. But it was something that Stephen King wrote in his book that it takes, it took him three months to lay down the first draft of a novel if he wrote 1,200 words a day. Because I've got a little bit of a competitive streak, I thought I could do more than that. (laughs) (laughs) And so my minimum when I'm writing is my minimum is 1,200 words a day. But if I shoot over, because sometimes, you know, you just have to keep going with a a scene or or whatever, a chapter, and I've just got, it's all there and it's flowing, so you keep going. And suddenly you've written 2,000. It's like, oh, I only have to write, you know, oh, well, maybe only... 
oh, a thousand tomorrow or 750 tomorrow or whatever. Um, but I, that's what I do. I, I, I have a, I, I want to lay down my first draft in a given time. But the first draft is just the clay on the wheel. It's, it's, it's just a blob of clay on the wheel. And then, then you get in there and you have to work it a bit. But to be able to do a book a year, you have to know that, you know, it's like, oh, now which author was it who, when he was asked, and I, I really can't remember who it was, um, what his uh, process was like. And he said, well, process? Well, he said, it's my job, nine to five, Monday to Friday. And, you know, it is my job as well as, you know, my creative endeavor. And that's it. I, I start at a given time. I start usually after I've done a morning walk. So maybe half past eight, boom, I'm at my, my desk. And, uh, and then I have a day that I plan. And, you know, I, at, at 2.30, I want to go out and ride my horse because that's my break. And so I, all my writing time is up to about sort of 1.30. And then I take a break and I come back. And then in the, later in the day when I'm probably not at my most creative, I perhaps I, I, I deal with the administration that goes with my work. And there is quite a bit of it. Um, one thing I don't do, I don't edit as I go along. Because oh, I, good. Think <laughs> I think that is the kiss of death. And that's why a lot of people don't finish a novel. I think it's because you know, that, that they desperately want to finish. It's because they they start fingering with it as they go along. And really, you're telling a story. So just tell a story. You can come back and be the word technician and the sentence technician and so on later. But get the story down. Have that accomplishment uh, of, of I have written my story. Here it is. And now I'm going to go in and I'm going to make it better. I'm going to make it sharper and so on. And, and it's, you wear a different hat. And I think it gives you such a sense of accomplishment of getting that story down. And um, for me, I will say that I learned, it wasn't so much a lesson learned with Maisie Dobbs. It was the only way I could do it with Maisie Dobbs because I wrote Maisie Dobbs while recovering from a very serious accident. So you know what? I didn't have the energy to, to fiddle faddle as I went along. And I'll give you a, a sort of a, a, an analogy here that many years ago, when I was in school, I used to make all my own clothes, but I learned in, in high school with uh, a very good teacher. And she, uh, I can remember her saying that, that uh, uh, when you're working, if you work a piece of fabric too much, it gets, it gets dirty and it starts to change shape and fray. And, she's, and I always think of that to do with my writing. Don't fiddle with it so much that it frays you know, mm. and gets grubby. <laughs> so. I love that. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, I definitely have learned sewing, but I knit a lot. And I think of like, you can't keep ripping out the yarn. It'll get yes. damaged ultimately. That's a very, that's a really good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So how much of a plan do you have? Cause you had these, these, the cuttings and then go into the story. So from those, you had six books, but obviously there's been a subsequent 11 that have come. How much of a plan do you have, say, for a Sunlit Weapon? How much of, how much of a plan did you have going in and starting yeah. that first draft? Um, not as much as someone might think, actually. It was, uh, it's interesting that, that some stories, most of my, my novels, I would say, 
that I had the idea for them a long time before I had the actual, um, before I was able to put that story into its place in the overall arc. Um, you know, with um, the mapping of love and death, there are things I knew that had to happen in that novel. And yet it wasn't until a couple of years before I wrote it that I got the, uh, the, main, the main nub of the story and I got it from something I read and then was able to weave that in. It was a letter that had been written that I came across. Um, and this story here, I'd always wanted to write about the women of the Air Transport Auxiliary in Britain. They were the first women ferry pilots. And um, most of the women actually ended up, I mean, they were, they were very skilled. They flew more aircraft than the average uh, male pilot in the RAF. The Air Transport Auxiliary was um, an independent organization. And actually, women um, ferry pilots only made up about uh, 10% of the air transport auxiliary, but they were really the glamour girls of, of the air during the war. They had really nice new uniforms, and, and uh, they, they were given the really bad jobs initially because they wanted, you know, well, let's see what they're made of. And they were given jobs to, I mean, aircraft to fly that no guy would have got, in, got into, you know. but. So I always wanted to write about them. And where I saw that it fitted into the story, you know, in 1942, um, what I asked myself, what else happened in 1942? Oh, here's something interesting that I'd also always wanted to write about. And that was the first, and not just the um, American servicemen coming into Britain after Pearl Harbor in their droves, but... Um, uh, African-American soldiers coming into Britain. And they were the, uh, among the first GIs to come to Britain because they were chiefly relegated to maintenance units. Therefore, the units that were building the bases, building the runways and so on. Therefore, they came, they were, uh, they were among the first contingent. Britain already had a massive amount of troops from across the then British Empire. So we, we had people of colour um, but not in some of the villages and towns where the um, African-American soldiers were, were based. And they were held with great affection. And it was very interesting to me, a very interesting social uh, situation where you had men coming from a segregated country into a very unsegregated country. Although perhaps, you know, a country impacted by class. So right. that was uh, one of the elements. And, you know, and also dovetailing, with the visit to the United Kingdom of um, Eleanor Roosevelt, who had been invited by um, the Queen, um, the wife of George VI, our current Queen's mother, um, to see the war work that the women of Britain were doing. And so that was all dovetailed together. And, uh, you know, the, the story fell into place over a period of time. And when I got, when I started writing, did I have the whole story in my head? No, I didn't. I just had my three main story threads. And, uh, and for each um, book, I keep, a, just, you know, one of those regular um, sort of um, composition books. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I will write in it, you know, what, what I think I might be writing about next. And I, I always keep track of the arc of my story. Um, did you want me to tell you what I do there? Yes, of course. <laughs> um, and some of your listeners might have heard me talk about this before, but 
when I wrote Maisie Dobbs, as I said, I had had I was I, I had had a horrible I'd had a horrible riding accident. I could not use my right arm, and I uh, I have spare parts. I'm bionic. <laughs> no, I have spare parts in my right arm. That's how you can and, write so fast. <laughs> well. I could only write with my left hand when I had Maisie Dobbs. And there's mm. a whole story that goes with that. But be that as it may, I to make my notes, I couldn't write, I couldn't write normally, you know, in a in a book or anything or on a pad. I could only do big letters with my left hand because I'm not very dexterous with my left hand. So I got my husband to go out to get me some of those big poster-sized post-it notes, you know. Yeah. And I, I stuck three of them on the wall. One was my characters, to keep track of my characters, because I have a habit of changing my characters' names. Oh, I know that second one. <laughs> was, yeah, the second was things I don't know that I need to know, which was basically all my research requirements, you know. So I suddenly think, I don't know enough about how milk was delivered in, in this war. Or I don't know. I'm writing about intelligence, naval intelligence. What do I really, I've got to find out about naval intelligence in that particular, that particular time. So I have a whole list. And, and sometimes it can be very, you know, getting down to the nitty gritty. And the third one, arguably the most important, and look at it, and there's no particular order here, was the arc of the story. So what I did was a kind of a lopsided standard mean. If you've ever done math and done statistics and you do this, that, that mountain, I just lopsided over one side. So it's a sort of lopsided mountain. And I put in, first thing is the denouement. And I kn we know where that comes. And then everything from there is, you know, a slide down. But then what needs to, the main things that need to happen towards that point. And I might have eight major points I, I don't go in for three acts and things like that because I get, for a start, I, I can't keep to that kind of discipline, you know, but this is how I do it. And it's, it's like a crescendo going up to that denouement. These are the things that absolutely need to happen. And then let's see where we go getting to those points. But I try to make those landing points. Do you make... And that's it. Amazing. And... Do you make a slope for each of those? Like for this one, you had several plot threads. There were several mm -hmm. stories happening that you've, you know, the Eleanor Roosevelt's visit. Mm -hmm. There was the issue with the, the pilots, the female pilots and her story and the case she brought in. And then the issue with the, the African-American soldiers. And so, and someone got missing. Did you have an arc that you would plot it out for each of them or are you no. plotting all of them at the same time? It's all in the sum. I, I, I don't have the time to do lots of different arcs. I actually don't have the time to do lots of different, lots of prep. You know, I do, mm -hmm. I do, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I know there are authors that do absolutely no prep at all and authors that do so much prep. I mean, I'd have written half the book by that time, you know, <laughs> and, and good, good for everybody you have to find your niche you have to find your what's comfortable for you this is comfortable for me so in a way it's uh the wonderful thing about a map having a map is that you can go off the beaten path because you always know what you're coming back to and that's how I look at my arc is that I can go off here and eh, I need to go back there again because oh, I'll go off here and oh, I need to come back there again you know, because this is this is where I'm headed. And, and sometimes I write, 
I write scenes that I know I will be taking out, but I write them because they had to have happened. It had to have happened. And it's almost, and when you read the book, it's, the, I know this is going to sound really wacko, but the energy is there. <laughs> oh no, I know exactly what you mean. Because yeah. you need to know what happened so that it can be referenced in a way that feels real. Yes, yes. And it's amazing the things that I, I know myself about each character that that still I know hasn't really come out, you know, in in my novels. But and, and maybe may at some point, um, you know, we'll see. But uh, and that, I'm talking about the main characters there. But yes, yeah. there's there's and of course, you know, one of the points you made early on about um, people coming back to a series and and you know you feel like you're joining uh, almost like joining a family again. I think that's what draws a lot of people to a series. And it's, it's, it's actually a, another way of finding community. Um, I once wrote a long essay for a course I did years ago um, uh, on, on, it's almost not, not, it was called the literary placebo, but it was about how we find community in different places. And one of those places is, is coming back to these characters and, uh, and that is true for me too. I have to take a break from them, but it's nice to come back to them and say, oh, so that's what you're doing now. That's who you are. That's who you've become. <laughs> that's one of the things I really enjoy about yours is that it doesn't all happen in, and I think you've spoken about this, that this was important to you, but that it's not like forever 1919. And mm -hmm. there's 375 cases that have happened inside, you know, a time period in which that wouldn't be possible, mm -hmm. but that we do move forward and we do see mm -hmm. the characters change and the world change alongside them. Yeah. It was interesting. I once received an a, a email from a lady who uh, was upset because um, Maisie Jobs was having a, this affair. And I had to point out that she's not 13 anymore. You know, she's She's actually pushing 40 here. <laughs> you know? and, and then she wrote back and said, oh, yes, of course. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's, it's, she's grown. She's grown up and she's, you know, changed as we all change. You know, you can't, I, I want, I don't know. I just like to see people grow and change. Like, uh, you know, and I can always remember, oh, gosh. Oh, oh I can't remember the author's name off the top of my head. Um, uh, the, the, the author who wrote the Morse series, and oh, when he find what yeah. was his name? And he, uh, I was listening. I went to listen to him at a, an event. It was actually at the Harrogate uh, Crime Writing Festival many years ago. I mean, he's passed on since then. And uh, and and he said, you know, there were a lot of a lot of murders taking place on the same day in Oxford. <laughs> you know? And how many people can you kill off in the same area? And and that, you know. And so that's uh, that. That I remember laughing about that at the time, and and it's you know to me the the mystery is always the, the characters. That's the true mystery is what's what's going to happen to the characters. You know. Yep. Exactly. Well, yeah. one of the things that came up in a sunlight weapon in particular that I really enjoyed was this calling back to Maisie's mentor Maurice through mm -hmm. a bit of advice and. It was an advice that was given to her as an investigator, but it made me think of what it means to be a writer as well, because 
he was saying to her, you will often see the cases that you are working on mirrored in your own life. And in fact, there are issues that come up in the case. I don't want to spoil anything, but there is a parallel between something happening in Maisie's personal life and the case that she's investigating. And I'm wondering if that's been the experience for you writing novels, if you see, because there is so much of your family history that has been Mm -hmm. pulled in as we saw from the memoir. But do you see this parallel happen? Like, why was I telling this story? Oh, I see why I was telling this story right now for me as the writer. You know, I think that happens to some extent, you know, that um, uh, I think we can't help ourselves. We, you know, I mean, I'm writing about completely fictional people, but when I'm expressing an emotion I mean, I have to go in and look into my own emotions to be able to express that emotion. And one of the biggest questions I think we can ask ourselves as writers, and it's one that I've done a million times, particularly during my research, is how would I feel if? Because there are lots of things that I write about that I don't know how I would feel or I didn't know how I would feel if, and I have to really go to that place. And I'll give you an example of that, um, although it's not quite addressing the question, but Um, It was when I was doing research for pardonable lies. I was actually in France. I was at the battlefields, the former battlefields of the Somme and Ypres. And I went to a, what was a casualty clearing station cemetery. And there were were different categories of, 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 of battlefield cemetery in France. This one was purely for the people that had died when a casualty clearing station had been shelled. Now, when I first wrote Maisie Dobbs, two or three books earlier, I I made that up about a casualty clearing station that had been shelled. I didn't know a casualty clearing station really had been shelled until I actually went to France and saw this. And some of the the battlefield cemeteries are incredibly small. They're not all big like you think of the D-Day cemeteries. Some of them are quite large, but some of them are quite small in a community. And I had to go down this narrow alley between two houses and came to a casualty clearing station cemetery. The cemetery was no bigger than my back garden. And it was not only um, there were were soldiers that had died when the cemetery was um, uh, shelled, but there were the graves of doctors and nurses and, uh, and actually a few German doctors, which is interesting. Because during the First World War, if you were any kind of medic and you were captured by the enemy, your job was to go to work immediately doing your job. And that was a question of honor. So you had British doctors working for the Germans and German doctors who had been captured working for the British. Your job is to save a life. So I stood there and and we uh, those people that know the series know that Maisie Dobbs in Pardonable Lies, um, there's a scene at a battlefield when she returns to France. She's returning to a place where she has lost her innocence in the way that you lose innocence if you're 17 years old and you see death of the most terrible kind. And I stood there in the pouring rain and thought, okay, I'm 32, 33 years old. I've come back to this place where terrible things happen to me. How would I feel if, and I knew immediately, I would not be able to stand on my feet. I would fall to my knees. I would fall to my knees and I would completely break down and it would all come back to me. And that was what I wrote. And, and to this day, I, I, get, I get really upset when I think about that. <laughs> you know, 
uh, how would I feel if? So the weaving in of experience, sometimes what you have to do is to take the next worst thing that happened to you. And the other thing I did to be able to write that scene, I had been involved in a car accident when I was 32 and uh, someone had whacked into the back of me. Um, and I was stationary in Britain on one of the major motorways. And this guy had gone into me at 70 miles an hour. I was lucky to get out alive. And after that, every time I heard a car skidding anywhere near me, I would, I would cower. And that helps me to write about things like shell shock. How do you feel if, you know, and, and you, you, you know, it, it was something that happened to me. Therefore, my, I knew my, there are responses that, that, are based solely in the emotions and the emotional memory. Does does that explain how I do things? <laughs> yes, it does. And yeah, I guess so the- that reflection that Maisie has, um, it's it's, and I think this often happens in life, and it happens when you're a writer in all sorts of ways that you'll be writing about something, and something turns up that actually ends up helping to write that scene. Um, and sometimes it's kind of spooky as well. Oh, yeah. But I'm, I'm really spooky. <laughs> um, but I won't, I'm sure you have other questions. I don't want to take it no, away. No, I'm actually, I'm really interested. I, no, I totally want to hear the spooky. I guess the, I want to ask one question about this before we go there. Did it help to write about something that referenced the experience from the car accident? Did that Did that help you move through it in any way? Or is that, the same as it always was after writing about it? Um, that's a really good question. I think what I understood more was, uh, I mean, I knew why I had those reactions that, that, you know, you hear a car skidding and you're waiting for the bang and you're expecting the bang to hit you. Um, and and I, I know from other experiences, I mean, sound, sound is a very, very, has a very big impact on people more than we think. In fact, the first many cases of shell shock in the first world war. And in fact, later in PTSD is what we call PTSD today and later. But in the first world war, there were men who had not even gone up the line to the front line. It was just the sound of what they were going to face that actually sent them into a type of delirium. Um, so we're very sensitive to sounds, very sensitive. And I, I think that comes out in, in some of the books as well. Um, but, uh, but I don't know that it sort of, I mean, it, I think possibly helped me to understand it more, but what it did was actually find it was almost, I found a purpose for my experience. And I think that's one of the interesting things about writing is that very often we, it's almost like you think, oh, so that's why that happened to me. So I would understand this. That's why, you know, I understand, you know, when, you know, I wrote about uh, being bullied when I was at school, uh, very young at school. Um, and, uh, and bullying takes on all sorts of, you know, it, it can be, in, it, it, you know, verbal, it can be physical, whatever. Verbal abuse is, 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 is just as damaging. It's, um, and, uh, and then it was, ah, it's, it's, it's not just something I wrote about in my memoir, but I was able to write about one of my characters and how that affected that particular character. And that was, you know, that without giving away spoilers, that dovetails into, you know, 
um, this experience of uh, that that Morris actually explains to Maisie when she's an apprentice that that you will see these things reflected in your personal life and it's a lesson. And I think we see that as writers. You know, we, there are experiences that we are that maybe seem far apart from that of the character, but it helps us. Something we have gone through, something we have endured, helps us to write about that. And um, it's interesting, though, it can happen the other way because years before my father died, I wrote about, um, you know, Maisie, uh, and again, no spoilers in case people haven't read this far into the series, um, Maisie, you know, with someone that she loved very much who's who's uh, passing away. And, and, you know, I can remember thinking about that scene when I was with my dad and he was, you know, in his last days um, and, and thinking what, you know, what, what was I thinking when I wrote that scene? And I realized that one of the things I was writing was, was almost the dreading of that day, you know, the dreading of that day. So it's amazing when you, you know, and sometimes it's interviews like this where you realize um, how much you've used your personal reactions in uh, in a in a in a in a story, but I do believe one of the most powerful questions we can ask ourselves is how would I feel if? Because you have to get out of your own head and into the head of the character. You can use all these other things that have come to pass, but you have to get into the head of your character. Definitely, <laughs> I'm. I, th- I do. I think it it makes it because we've all been through in varying forms over the past several years, really difficult experiences of one form or another. Mm-hmm. And to be able to use that constructively in a book mm-hmm. does, mm-hmm. I mean, I usually say to myself, okay, I don't have bad days. I just have good material is what I try that's to a, think That's about. a great one. That's a great one. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. what I try to keep thinking. And so I'm curious about, I've got to hear one spooky thing because I feel like the spooky... <laughs> Spooky examples are the ones that 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 bring that because sometimes it does feel like they're drawn right in in order to be used. If that makes sense, it's it's an interesting. I've actually got two spooky things to tell you. I'm I'm excited. Freak everybody out, but I love um, it. uh, It was when I was writing Birds with Feather, um, which is let's just say one of the threads is the white feather movement. you know, giving white feathers to young men who were believed not to be at the front fighting when they should have been at the front fighting, even though that young man might have been at the front fighting and could not go back due to injury. And there were a lot of really horrible things done by this movement. However, even before I started writing that book, uh, you know, when I was still, you know, doing my, you know, sort of my, my standard mean and my arc and my characters and everything, I'd go out for a walk and I'd see feathers. And okay, I think, okay, well, I live in a rural area. You're bound to see feathers as birds. But then I started to see a lot of feathers. And feathers would turn up in strange places. And I think I was doing some early research for birds of a, for pardonable lies when um, I was still doing writing for doing some writing for birds of a feather when I, I did one of my first visits to France to the battlefields. And I was walking through a place called, um, uh, it was, it's where the, the Canadian army have a, or Canadians have one of their memorials, Newfoundland Park. Um, and it's where the men of um, Newfoundland went over the top on the first day of the Somme 
and July 1st, uh, 1916. And there are still trenches that you can walk through. And, you know, they've been restored a bit. I was walking through the trenches and what happened? I looked sideways. I thought, oh, there's a feather. And these feathers kept turning up. And, um, and, and, and it was really noticeable. It wasn't just the odd feather. And I was on my book tour for Birds of a Feather. And I had this um, publicity person with me for a couple of the events. She decided to join me. And we were at in the Hertz car rental place <laughs> at LAX airport. And I started telling her about the feathers. And, you know, she was going, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. And suddenly, boom, 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 a feather landed on my, on my sleeve. And she looked sideways and she said, no one is going to believe me that this happened. <laughs> <And> it was, <laughs> so it, it happened. It happened. And, um, and, and also, uh, and I would tell you about this with a sunlit weapon, one of the characters has a walk-on part. It's an owl. And the owl is, is a, you know, owls are mystical creatures. And I just wrote in an owl. And after that, I swear, I just saw owls everywhere. But it was, it was here's how weird it got. I was buying a house and, and moving to, a, we're moving to a, a new community, a different part, a different state, actually. And I was walking around town and I thought, oh, I'll go into this gallery. I wanted, because they offered art classes and I sometimes like to noodle around with art, even though I'm not an artist. And I walked in. All the exhibit was about owls. They had owl sculptures. They had owl this, owl that. I thought, oh, this is strange. And I came out again, walked on, and eventually um, bought a house in this community. And um, it was when you do the walkthrough and the week before the you close the the, 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 the the sale, I had one of my friends with me, and I was I told her about this strange thing that was happening while I was writing, and this owl, this owls are everywhere. I said, like, I said, owls. I said, an owl swooped down in front of me as I was driving my car. <laughs> and we get to the house, and she said, Jackie, did you notice this? And I said, notice what? And she's pointed, and there was a door knocker in the shape of an owl. It was an owl. <laughs> so we get into the house, and we're walking around, and I looked up, this big tree in the back and there just happened to be the gardener there and I went is that an owl box up there and he said oh yes he said you know the owner really loved owls in fact this was called the owl house and I went <laughs> okay <laughs> that's enough <laughs> and uh and then what happened of course I told a couple of people now all they do is keep giving me owls <laughs> you know? of course that's owl inevitable owl this owl that and so it's over <laughs> isn't, isn't that funny but um the really spooky story is that I told, oh. I was telling a friend of mine that I don't talk to very often, an old friend that we'd done a course together years ago. And she is one of these people that is, everybody's going to be freaking out of this, a, a, a registered, uh, I think it's called a registered medium, but she works with police departments. She's oh, the, cool. Has, uh, let's say she has great insight and intuition. And she said, you know, she said, Jackie, she said, it's really interesting. She said, and she explained that a few years before she had a friend who worked in uh, editorial in a, for a publishing company. And this friend has said to her, look, you know, we, we like to have readers to read through new manuscripts just to get a response. Would you mind doing this? Because you're quite an insightful reader. And she said, oh, sure, I'll do that. You know, she liked reading new books. 
So they would send her manuscripts. And she said, she said, actually, Jackie, she said, I had to stop doing it. She said, because I realized, she said, that becoming a character in a book is another means of reincarnation. And that really freaked me out. <laughs> I know. Wow. I know. I tell you, I had to get, I, t- I thought, oh, I'm not, I'm not even going to think of that one again, but I've probably freaked out all your writers now. <laughs> no, I think all of them are probably quite fascinated, as am I. Yeah. And I think, and I, I thought, well, why not? You know, um, what do we know about, what does anyone know about that? And, and I think as writers, we have to be, if we're writers anyway, we have to be open to that which cannot be explained. We have yes. to be open to the scene that comes to us that we never thought we would write, the character that comes to us that we never thought would take, a play, take part in that. But we have to be open to that which cannot be explained, which isn't spooky. It just means you're a creative person. And if you're a creative person, you're an open person. You have to be. You can't be closed. <laughs> because creativity is about opening things up, not closing them down. And I think this goes even a step further because there's the benefit that the story does to you as the writer, but then you're now putting these books out to readership that has grown over the past decades. And who knows which one of them needs that story and that story, you know, that, that we hear this story as a writer and then we write it, but who's going to benefit from reading that? Cause I think you've told me before of people who've read your books and spoken to you, uh, signings about how the book impacted them and allowed them yes. to, to grow or move through something difficult for them. That has happened to me numerous times. And, and I think it's happened to many, many authors because I think one of the things we, we look for, what, whatever we're writing, um, we're looking for you. Uni- we're not looking for them. What we find, what we touch upon are universal truths. If we are writing, um, if we are touching character, and if we're writing from the heart, you cannot help but touch upon right, universal truths. And I, I don't care what you're writing. Um, and I think that's where it, it truly resonates at a deeper level with people. The, the, the most quote unquote simple story. I think also when you are uh, writing uh, anything that involves sort of mystery, if you will, you're going through that process of, of through chaos, through resolution. That is what it is. It's a journey. It's an archetypal journey. So one of the, there were two, there were, there were probably two or three situations that stand out. And that is one of the, uh, a letter that I received from a gentleman. And it was um, just uh, after I'd written Pardonable Lies. And during Pardonable Lies, um, uh, Priscilla refers to the dragon inside her. And it's this dragon of memory. And she has to keep the dragon mollified, um, has to keep it down, has to keep it in its cave because of all the things she saw as an, you know, driving ambulances on the Western Front during the war. And she said, you know, that's the thing you have to, we all have our dragon and we have to keep the dragon mollified. I had a letter from a, a gentleman and he explained, he said, you know, I'm a doctor. And he said, I was actually a young medic in Vietnam. And he said, we all have our dragons, we who have served. He said, your book made me realize that, uh, that my dragon is still alive and I still have to keep him mollified every single day. And he said, I, I, he said, I haven't thought of my dragon for a long time, but I know he's there. I know it lurks inside me. 
which really touched me, as did uh, another letter I received from a, uh, I think she was 94 years old. And uh, this was in the early days when uh, I was really touching upon Maisie's experience and coming to terms with her experiences in the First World War. And this lady told me about uh, that she was when she was a little girl, you know, her father had served on the Western Front and um, and he came home with shell shock. And he when she was 11, he took his own life. And she said, I've struggled 94 years old. She said, I have struggled to understand my entire life, why he took his his why he took his own life. At last, I understand. And, you know, that, that takes your breath away. But I also think that one of the things I write about, mainly because I, I, I suppose I have seen it in so many people, particularly people of a certain age, um, the, the ability to endure, the ability to persevere and to be resilient and Particular, I mean, it's amazing in the last couple of years how many people have written me saying that the books had given them um, some sort of uh, sort of. Not, I don't want to use the word strength, but uh, it has inspired them to know that we have gone through bad times in the past. You know, um, we have gone through these times, but we can endure. We come through it, and I actually think that's one of the. The elements that people are drawn to, not only with a series, um, but, uh, you know, the historical mystery, because not only is it a journey through chaos to resolution, we can look back and say, you know, um, particularly when the, the times are woven in, people, that was pretty rough, but people got through it, you know, and, and, and there were some who faltered, some people who didn't, some people who lifted others up, but we got through it. And and how did we get through it? And I know it, it's really interesting. Uh, um, you 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 asked me about this this something I'd said earlier on when uh, we were talking about you know the 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 time these times of of going through pandemic and that. And I said, well, as my husband always says, you know, do the next indicated thing because sometimes <laughs> there's so much to think about. You know, you just do the next indicated thing. And I think writing's like that as well, particularly when we hit a rough spot. Do the next indicated thing. But um, but yes, I think uh, I think this is where uh, story story has the the ability to lift us up and to remind us to endure and to remind us that that you know we're not alone. And uh, if we look back to sort of the, the history of fiction, we look at the myths and legends. They lifted. They were there to lift people up, to warn them, to lift them up, to. Uh, you know, to reflect archetypal journeys and universal truths. And I think we do that with the simplest of stories. You know, we do. <laughs> and I think that that's, that's so important is to remember that I think the, the sort of inner critic has this way of, of twisting our desire to write and share and publish a story by sort of making it an almost egotistical process of like, well, who do you think you are to share this? Or who do you think you mm -hmm. are to put a book out? But when you think about the impact of that 94 year old woman suddenly understanding mm -hmm. something that had weighed on her her whole life, I just sort of think, well, who are we not to write the story and share it if it has the potential yes. to benefit someone else? It's interesting you should say it because I could, when I received that, that letter, I thought, 
if that was my only reader, if that was the only person who ever bought that book, that is enough. Might not have been enough for my publisher, but it's certainly enough for me. <laughs> you know, it's certainly enough for me. And uh, um, yes, who are we not? It's, it's really funny. I was looking at something I kept. Uh, I kept on my. Um, oh, it's from Nelson. I, I had it stuck on a, a on a computer, and it dropped on one of my old computers. And I was looking for something today. Actually, I was looking for my headset, <laughs> and it it dropped out. And it it it, it, it said, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant? gorgeous, talented, and fabulous. Actually, who are you not to be? Yeah, You are a child of God. And whatever you believe, you know, who are you not to be? You know, you have, you know, if that one person says, this, has, this did something for my heart, that's the one person you wrote for. That's okay. <laughs> you know, I'm, I, uh, I, I think we need, we need, creativity we need creativity so much in in our world and uh and we can use that creativity to reflect all sorts of things we can use it to reflect um current affairs um journeys through difficulty goodness me journeys through a, a pandemic and you know actually i often in the past couple of years i kept thinking yeah what would my mother have said about this you know my my mom who went through you know the Blitz in London, who was in a bombed out house two or three times, you know, these sort of things and, and knew what it was to know fear and to know what it was not to get a decent meal in your stomach because of the rationing and goodness knows what, and to be sent away from home. Um, and it was, uh, I, I can remember her, her line was, we just got to get on with it. <laughs> you know, And I think that's also good for writing. Just, just get on with it. I often yeah. think of that when I'm sort of looking at thinking, oh, I've got to write another book. How am I? Just, just get on with it. Just, <laughs> just get on with it. And, and even sometimes when I know I'm writing absolute rubbish, I think I can take the rubbish out later. I've got to get to the next point. I've got to write the story. Just get on with it. Do the next indicated thing. <laughs> you have to be cross with yourself at times. I love it. Yeah. Well, it's been, as always, such a joy to speak to you again. Um, it was a lovely reunion to get back together with the characters in A Sunlit Weapon. It was a very, very delicious diversion. So I encourage everyone to pick up wherever you've been with the series and enjoy an escape. If you haven't yet found the series, then you're in for a treat because you're not going to run out for a little while, which there's nothing I love more than finding a series when there's like, a whole bunch of them that I can chew through before I run out, but I'm all caught up now. And um, <laughs> I look forward to hearing from others once they are too. That's thank you so work. much. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And, um, you know, it's lovely to see you again, you know, on zoom here and, uh, uh thank you for your time and, and thank you for your interest in the books. It's always, it's always a joy when when people are actually interested in your books and interested in asking about them and so on. That that, that one never tires of that because it's I I consider it a privilege to be published, a privilege to be published because there are so many people that would love to be published that aren't, and uh, and everybody keeps going. And uh, I'm I'm 
it's 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 a privilege it's a privilege to have readers so thank you very much <laughs> oh you're so welcome it's a joy Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.